evening. It's wonderful to have all of you here with us today. Did you all have a shocking day today? You know, according to the History Channel, today was the day in 1752 when oh, good old Benjamin Franklin flew a kite in a thunderstorm to demonstrate the correlation between lightning and electricity. This is definitely a don't try this at home kids kind of a thing, so, <laughs> all right. Well, it's time to turn it over to somebody who's always safe with science, at least almost always. It's Dr. John in the Technology Spotlight. We're going to talk about quantum dots. Sounds mysterious, doesn't it? You know, I was thinking it sounds kind of like a polka dot shirt, clothing fashion, you know? Quantum dots. If you've got the dots, you've got a lot, right? You know? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> We're not talking about clothes, but it would be cool. Would be cool. <laughs> We're talking about quantum dots because they can do some pretty amazing things. Quantum dots are actually teensy tiny particles of semiconducting material. And the really neat thing about them is the way that they can fluoresce. And this means they take light and re-emit it at a different color, a different spectrum. So if you take a look at this picture, you can see these different bottles with a liquid that each has a different kind of quantum dot in it. And then they're shining an ultraviolet light on them. So if you looked at it without the quantum dots there, it would look dark because ultraviolet means we don't see it. But when it hits the quantum dots, depending on which bottle, it fluoresces a different color. And these are really bright and beautiful colors, aren't they? Well, uh, this is one of the really neat properties with quantum dots. Uh, I want to show you uh, what it takes to make the different colors. And really, the different colors are based on the size of the dots. So if you have a smaller dot, then you'll get something closer to the blue, or somewhere around two nanometers, then you get the blue light emitted, and then as you get bigger, up to like six nanometers, you get the red light. So you can control really, really accurately what color you want by what size of dots you make. And some of you may have heard of quantum dots before because some of the big TV manufacturers advertise their quantum dot TVs, and all that means is that they're using quantum dots to make their backlights. Remember how they have the liquid crystals in front that have the individual pixels? And they're made of red, green, and blue? Well, behind that, they have a light that's shining. And if the crystal's on or showing, then the light passes through, and you get that color. But if they use a white light, they actually have uh, colors in between that leak through the crystals, and it makes it so the color's not quite perfect. So they use quantum dots, and instead of having a white backlight, they have a blue backlight, and then they use quantum dots to make the perfect red and the perfect green, and so you get a better color on your TV. So that's, that's a pretty cool way to use it, isn't it? Well, I want to talk about some researchers at a company that are working on other ways to use it. And they call it UBQD, their company, because it's ubiquitous quantum dots, right? Uh, so take a look at this. Uh, this is uh, what looks like a normal window. You can see how it has a little bit of a tint to it. But the idea here is they can actually create electricity from solar power just by the sunlight that's going through this window. 
And what happens is they use the quantum dots to change the frequency of light that normally wouldn't be used, and then it reflects back and forth inside the pane and comes to the edges, and they collect that light for solar energy. That's a pretty cool way to use quantum dots, I'd say. So they were trying to figure out where they could find big windows, and they could try out their solar technology, and you know, uh, they finally came up with the idea of the greenhouses. These greenhouses have these huge windows. Just think, they could be growing plants and making solar energy at the same time. Win-win, <coughs> right? So they started talking to some of these um, greenhouse managers, and their first reaction was, well, is it going to lower the production of my plants? Because you've got to remember, in a greenhouse, they can grow plants quite efficiently. And they're controlling the temperature, the carbon dioxide, they're getting as much light as possible because compared to what they're paying for their rent and their materials, the production that they get is how they compensate that. And so if they can produce more, then they make more profit. And they can you know, increase the business and uh, improve the world, right? <laughs> so that's kind of a problem if their solar window is going to reduce the sunlight. But then they got an idea. What if we were to change the light going through the window and make something that's more efficient for plants? Remember how plants, when they photosynthesize, will use mostly the other colors and then reflect the green. The green light is what's wasted. So they use quantum dots to make a filter that actually changes the sun's light to be more efficient for growing plants. Now that's a cool use for quantum dots, isn't it? Take a look at this greenhouse. They made these sheets that go over the top and it kind of makes a yellowish color and they found that they can increase production of, uh, their example was tomatoes by 20%. A 20% increase in production. That's pretty dramatic, isn't it? And uh, these little quantum dots are, aren't little, they're big, right? And <laughs> it'll make a big difference. And uh, so they're also doing some research with NASA because NASA wants to use this in space. If we're ever gonna send astronauts to places like Mars, we're gonna, be able, we're gonna need to be able to grow plants in space. And if you think about it, without the Earth's protection, the Earth's atmosphere, the plants are gonna have a hard time with all that ultraviolet light and stuff. Well, if we had a quantum dot filter that changes that light into something useful, it would protect the plants and increase production at the same time. So that would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah, so uh, this is spreading and it's getting popular. You know, maybe someday it will uh, be something that you have in your home or in your greenhouse and you'll probably say, you know, those quantum dots, they changed my light, <laughs> right? <laughs> <Did I? laughs> yeah, and your life, right? <laughs> well, that's all the tech we have the time for. Thank you. <laughs> all right, now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias. Well, tonight, it's a little bit sobering, because I'm here to tell you the truth. The truth is, it's all a lie. I know. We're talking about movies, folks. Okay? They're all just a big old lie. Okay? And I'm talking about those big movies with the big stars. Keanu Reeves. What? Schwarzenegger. Mark Rogers. 
Hello, students. Okay. <laughs> That's the only impression I dare do. Okay. No. No. Yeah. Um, we're talking about these movies, these famous movies. They're all lies. What is he, is he saying? Harry Potter's not real? No, I'm not. Well, yes. Okay. But no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about they're not what you thought. Okay? When you watch a movie, you're like, oh, these fun moving pictures. And we see all this action going on. Okay, hopefully. There's all this movement, but it's not. In fact, every time, in fact, right now, if you're looking at the screens, you're not seeing me move. Okay? I could go. There's a family right now. The feed just stopped. That's not funny. <laughs> but you're not seeing movement. Not one of these single seconds of me speaking is really me moving. It's actually a bunch of pictures, frozen pictures. And if you stop and think about it, uh, it makes sense. I mean, yeah, a lot of pictures and it's movement. Well, it, it's a lot of frozen pictures that our brain is turning into movement the way we see it. And there's actually a phenomena that we found with the human brain in that if, if we put up a picture and take it away, if we can get another picture up within one-fifth of a second, our brain will not notice the black between those two pictures. And if I put another one up before a fifth of a second, you won't see the black. And if I keep putting pictures up, you'll just see those pictures. And it goes a step further where if there is a change, a slight change in each of those images or cartoons or graphics or whatever, our brain registers that as movement, okay? And they, they I mean, people have been doing this kind of thing with little, if you've seen those flip books with the little characters, um, they even, some people say that even the cavemen did drawings and took, I don't know, torches. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> For the night's episode. <laughs> so, no. But we do know that the, that's how the brain works, okay? But how do we get to this movie thing, okay? Well, they were doing those fun cartoons and things, and that was its own deal. And this is hundreds of years ago. And then something new came on the scene, and that was photography. Now we could take a picture of real life. And you would, you know, maybe somebody saw that and thought, wow, let's do like a bunch of pictures and make a movie. That's not how it happened. In fact, our story starts with a bet, and I am not endorsing betting. But there was a bet placed by a Californian who was, he was actually a politician and he owned a horse track. He was a businessman and he loved horses. And he was sure that when a horse got up to a gallop, there was a point at which all four of their hoofs were off the floor. The floor. They were in the air when they would do their gallop. And another prominent businessman said that's not true. And they kind of decided, you know what, okay, this is a bet. The bed is on. But what are you going to do? Go out there? Yep, see, he went up. Did you, see, you didn't see that? <laughs> How are you going to prove that? So he hired a photographer slash inventor to come up with photographic proof. This is in the 1800s to prove that this horse comes off the ground. So the photographer decided to set up. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to have a camera. Okay, let him go <laughs> and try and catch that moment. He, he may have tried that, at least in his mind. It was not a good idea. It wouldn't have worked. It didn't work he set 12 cameras up right by each other and they had trigger wires running across the track that the horse would trigger when it crossed. And it came galloping and went across and it did 12 photos, boom, 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 one after another with the horse in the frame. 
and when they looked at the pictures, and here are his pictures, this is what they, they came up with. And if you look at the top, horses do fly, okay? <laughs> um, and this was, this was a breakthrough. This was a moment where, wow, we had never thought about photos like this. You could take a bunch of pictures and study how things move. You could study how a horse runs. What if you could study other things by seeing it at a faster rate than what we notice? But this wasn't, wow, movies! It wasn't like that. It wasn't like they took this horse animation and started playing it over and over. They just looked at it and thought, wow, we could study things. In fact, another, um, a Frenchman, he made a camera and it literally was a gun, okay? It had a thing you hold like this and he went around looking for birds and it had a, a roll of film. Instead of a little plate you put in, he did a roll of 12 photos in a roll of film and he'd find a bird. He wasn't frowning probably. <laughs> he'd find a bird, aim and fire, and it would take 12 pictures extremely fast and then he could study how birds move. So that's kind of what this was for a lot of people, a way to study movement. We can take pictures really fast. It wasn't movies. So what happened? Well, we need to go to tonight's, oh, here's the, here's the gun. This is good stuff, yeah. So it's, it looks so violent, but it's peaceful. It's just bird watching. Um, <laughs> it would take a gentleman from America who was the mentor of the mentor of Dr. Billings, Thomas Edison, to see more potential in this. Now, he had already invented the phonograph, which was a way to record sound and play it back. And he told his crew, he had a big lab crew of scientists that worked for him, okay, I have a new project, and that is I want to do the phonograph, which works for ears. I want to do the same thing for your eyes. What? <laughs> <laughs> I want to do that same thing where we record live stuff and we can play it back. And so they started looking, how are we going to do this? Well, he went on a trip to Europe, met that guy who had the gun, and... He was blown away and he immediately put that in his memory bank and when he went home he said, okay guys, listen, here's how we're going to do the camera. And they started working on coming up with a new camera. Now they ran into several challenges, of course. One of the challenges was film. How are you going to first get film to move that quickly but stop? Remember, it's not just, okay, roll and you roll. Okay, that might be what it looks like but it needs to come into the shot the film that's going to get exposed because remember it's lots of pictures come in get exposed then the next one needs to come so there needs to be a little pause for each square of film so they put these little holes up and down the sides of the film and they used an idea from a pocket watch design where they had gears that would turn the film and there was this little arm that would go up grab pull down go up grab pull down and it would just pull the film down one by one in increments very quickly much faster than that so that every film, piece of film had a little moment to be exposed. And they needed this custom made, obviously, because no one had ever done this. So he went to his friend George, and he said, George, his name, George Eastman, <laughs> and Kodak made him 50-foot rolls of this film. And they started to create test videos. And they would record 16-second videos, and eventually they came with a product. And it wasn't, um, you know, a big movie theater, it was a personal viewer. You know, you little personal viewer, yeah, I'm gonna go do YouTube for a while. Oh, only YouTube was this big. <laughs> and it was 16 seconds and there were only like five of them. Okay, so here's a picture of the craze. And this is pretty amazing because those are actually headphones. 
okay? Because he had, a, he had them put a phonograph in to play music while they would watch a little 16-minute clip. And these started to pop up where they had kinetoscope parlors. And basically, it was a row of these, and you could pay a quarter, and you could go put the headphones on and look in and watch something. And it exploded. So much so that he had a whole crew of his uh, Edison team create the first video production studio. And it was a big, it was a building with a big black room in it. They did black so that the, the people would stand out against the black. And they needed a lot of light, but they didn't have the kind of light we have now. So they had a retractable sunroof. And the whole building was on a, a platform that could spin. So when the sun would move, they would move. Okay? <clears throat> if you think our lights are hot, okay? But this, this turned into a big new craze of watching something that was alive in here. And it would revolutionize, obviously, as we now see it today, into something that would be a worldwide industry from something that was a technology that had been just kind of dabbled with and then finally pushed through the rest of the way. So remember, I mean, tonight if we're, if we're at 30 frames a second, so 30 pictures every second roughly, that's like, what, 108,000 pictures in one hour. So you're just seeing a lot of pictures, guys. Um, and next time you're sitting there in the movie theater with your parents, okay, and Avatar 2 comes on, James Cameron did not pay me $50 to say that. <laughs> but he could have. <coughs> just, just look at it and go, I know the truth. Okay, but keep it to yourself. Don't go to your, mom, I know it's not real. Because <laughs> they'll probably just go, good. <laughs> Thank you. And now, introducing Roger Billings. <laughs> you have more entrances, don't you? It's amazing. Did you hear that? Tobias told about telekinesis. Yeah. Yeah, that's where you move things with your brain. Did you uh -huh. hear that? That was good. <coughs> what are you saying? Just listening. <laughs> hey, I'm going to send you guys 180,000 pictures tonight, so be ready. <laughs> Here they come. Here they come. Okay. Actually, I, I have some pretty exciting news in our ongoing study about aliens. <laughs> We've really? been trying to figure out some reliable way to find out if a person is of this planet or perhaps some other planet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they have developed a special kind of a radiation detector where you can actually turn this thing on, and if it's an alien, you can get a signal. Mm -hmm. Of course, it takes an antenna, but you can, you can tell. Have you tried it? No. Oh. No, I... It's hard to find aliens that are willing to let you experiment on them. <laughs> That's true. But the, the real exciting breakthrough was kind of like, you know, the quantum dots, only these are in glasses. Can you imagine having those in glasses? And you put these on, and if you actually encounter an alien, you can tell with the glasses that it's an alien. They're kind of like alien detector glasses. Oh, yeah? Are you interested? 
those gents would have it. <laughs> you just have some? I happen to have some tonight, okay? And so we'd like to see if there are any aliens in the room tonight. Uh, do you want to just look through these so we can tell? <laughs> I'm blonde, but I'm not dumb. No, no, just, just, just try them on. We just want to see. You know, there's been a rumor going around that Peugeot might be an alien. That's right. Put those on. Okay, Let good. Me see if and I can now see. we'd like to confirm it with the little antenna thing. Here you go. Just put those on. Are you not going to do it for me? Well, I could. <laughs> what if I get shot? What if I can't see? Okay, here we go. Here we go. Okay. Now, you need to, you need to look right at the camera, and we're going to do a, a closey. Oh, look at that. Okay, can anyone tell Am I? if there are any aliens present? Maybe. Maybe? What do you think? I think we have confirmation. I think we definitely have confirmation. I think that was rigged. So if Thomas Edison figured out how to record voice and then play it back, and then if he figured out how to record pictures and play that back, uh -huh. what's left for us to invent? Silence. I've got an idea. Did Thomas Edison figure out how to communicate through time? Okay, so let's try it. So here's how it's going to work. So Thomas Edison mentored Bill Lear, and I was privileged to work with Bill Lear. Mm -hmm. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send a message back through Bill Lear to Thomas Edison. Okay. And this will be the first time anyone's actually succeeded at this. And then he will send a message forward to us. Now, that's easy, because he could just you know, make a movie back then, because that's when he'd get my message. Mm -hmm. And then he'd go ahead, and when we see that movie, if we got the answer, then we definitely know he got our message. That's true. Is this making sense? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what should we tell him? I don't know what we want to tell him. You've got it all figured out. But it's really kind of interesting when you think about it, time. The final frontier. No, that's space, isn't it? Space time. All right. Anyway, does time allow people to travel through it? Can We're you go back in time? Can you go forward in time? I mean, and even if you can't, is it possible? Is that how time works? And a lot of people have a lot of theories and ideas on that, don't they? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Is that a trick question? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, let me just say it more clear. Do you think? <laughs> let me see. <laughs> I think we do travel through time. <laughs> That's my excuse for saying that. Can we go to a commercial? <laughs> it's not good at all. Okay. These reflect my own <clears throat> opinions and not the opinions of a cell. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Edison. I would like to say hello to you from the future. We're coming from the year 2020, post-virus, <laughs> and here we are. And we'd just like you to know that we appreciate you making those movies for us. If you're getting this message, would you please make a movie and send it down to us, and then we will know you heard us. Goodbye. 
<laughs> Goodbye. Well, one of the real interesting things that is challenging science today is this whole thing about space and time, the speed of light, why things cannot go faster than the speed of light, mm -hmm. how can you have an object impact another object so far away that it impacts it faster than the speed of light, how can that be possible? All of these things are really frontiers that Thomas Edison did not invent for us. He did not figure out. Now Star Trek has this warp thing. And warp means you go the speed of light, and if you go warp two, you go two times the speed of light. And if you have warp three, you go three times the speed of light. And one thing they tried to do in Star Trek, which by the way was fictional, it was fake, <laughs> right? He wasn't really a Vulcan. No, he wasn't. But one of the things they tried to do is base their whole story and script off of science. And if you think about the fact that light cannot, nothing can go faster than the speed of light, well then warp two, which would be twice the speed of light, would be impossible. But in Einstein's theories, it's possible to warp space. And you say, what in the world is that? Well, let's just suppose that you were going to go to school and it was five blocks away. And so it would take you a certain amount of time, even if you ran as fast as you could go to get there. But if you got some kind of a neat camera editor that could take the Google space image, you know, the Google Maps image of your city and the road between the school and your house. If you take that image and you distort it and you twist it around so that your house is right by the school, one step you'd be to school. And that's actually what warp means. That's why they call it warp drive, because they're saying that you actually warp space so that you're close. And you, you can get there as though you're going 10 times, five times the speed of light, which is how she got here. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we're not supposed to no know that, are we? That. Okay, does that all make sense? I think it does. Okay, well back on point. Can we get serious now? Quantum dots are very, very intriguing to me. And I, I think it's very fascinating. On this earth, most of the the shortwave ultraviolet energy that comes from the sun is blocked in our atmosphere. Our atmosphere, remember, is that big bubble of oxygen and nitrogen that surround the earth and we have some ionized layers up on top, etc. And this harmful infrared radiation is blocked and, and it doesn't get through. If it did, it would probably be bad for us. Remember, they call it germicidal because it destroys the DNA molecule. We talked about that. Mm -hmm. And it does it because it's at the frequency where the DNA molecule resonates and it vibrates until it breaks up. And so that energy does not make it down to the surface where plants and living organisms and aliens uh, dwell that might be damaged from it. But in these greenhouses, they have some UV that still gets through, and it's more the long wave UV. But it hits these quantum dots, and they absorb the energy, 
and re-radiate it in a color that photosynthesis is looking for. And so the greenhouses produce 20% more tomatoes, which is kind of exciting. In space, when they're trying to grow greenhouses in the Mars probe, do you think we'll really have a Mars probe? Elon Musk thinks I we do. will. A lot of people do. I but do. in that case, it's impossible to pack enough food to make such a long trip. You pretty much have to be able to grow it. And so you're out there in space, and now there's no atmosphere to block the shortwave UV. So here's a way to turn that energy into useful light that'll help grow the plants. And that's doubly important because when you start getting farther out into space, light gets dimmer as you get farther and farther from the sun. So we want to use all the light we can get, even the UV, to be able to grow our plants. I think it's really neat. It is neat. It really, really intrigues me. Now, if I understood John's story, Dr. John's story tonight properly, they weren't really trying to grow tomatoes when they were developing this technology. They were trying to figure out how to collect solar energy to make electricity or something out of it. And they were looking for a place to test their technology. And lo and behold, they invented something that's probably even more valuable the ability to produce more food. And isn't that interesting that very often what we invent isn't what we intended to invent? Mm -hmm. Can you think of anything that wasn't intended to be invented but it was? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Cue the timer. Exactly. <laughs> I can, it's not appropriate to talk about. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> You put that on me. See these things? Are we broadcasting PG-13 <laughs> Anyway. Well, I, I think it's really important to think about this for a minute because their, their experiment was kind of a failure. They were trying mm -hmm. to make electricity probably out of that energy from the sun. And instead, all they did was grow a lot of tomatoes, which is very valuable. The cost of operating a greenhouse is high, and yet the produce that comes out of a greenhouse is often just perfect, delicious produce. And they're saying they're going to be able to grow 20% more, one-fifth more produce, with the only cost being putting these films on there. And they don't consume any electricity. They just sit there and make light that can be used. Now, as I listen to that story, my mind starts wondering, what else could we do with that? If we had the ability, which we do, of changing light from one color to another, what could we do with that? Now, Joseph over here has the idea, well, at Halloween we could make costumes <laughs> and UV light, you know, and all that neat stuff, which we really could. A magician, years ago, came up with an invention that could be related. Now, quantum dots, I don't suppose, John, are what we use as paints for black light, are they? No, that's another technology where we use a pigment that happens, or a chemical that actually radiates those colors, but it's, it's very similar. But this magician had the idea that if you shine a black light, a really good black light, which means it only comes out as invisible light, which is because it's ultraviolet, 
that it would shine on things and not show up. But if you then put a paint on them that has the pigment that turns the UV into visible light, you could have things be visible. And so he developed a whole magic trick with these strange objects doing things. And his assistant was dressed all in black and was going around moving them and nobody could see the assistant. That's pretty cool. Yeah, That's it's pretty neat. Yeah. And it's kind of using the same technology, shed the light. I have long been intrigued with black lights. Have you ever experimented with them? They're just really neat. And you shine it and you get <laughs> such a bright object over there. I once made a little painting and I got some black light paints and painted the lights in this little house and then I put a black light on it and it was like the lights were really on. It's really kind of like neat. it comes alive. Well, the good news is that we now have light-emitting diodes, LEDs, that put out black light. And uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about one of them being used to catch hornworms in the garden. Do you remember that? <laughs> yep, $10 on the internet, and you can get a flashlight, a black light flashlight. And if you go out at night and shine it on your tomato plants, hornworms glow in the dark. And so you can see mm -hmm. them and invite them to <laughs> dismiss themselves. work somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of neat. But because these LEDs, unlike the old fluorescent bulbs, do you remember those? They go off, mm -hmm. you get a black light bulb and they're kind of dark purple, but they give off purple light. And so you can kind of see the magician's helper moving around. That's not but cool. With the LEDs you can't. <laughs> There's no purple light, yeah. it looks really neat. We all ought to try those. I wonder if there's something that someone tonight could figure out of what we could do with these quantum dots, with dots that could change light from one color to the other by absorbing it and remitting it, especially the ultraviolet light to another. Now John talked about the televisions. And yeah, this is, this is quite a deal. Someone is able to sell more televisions at a higher price because they put this film in front and it made the color just a little bit better. In fact, it's probably so close to the same that if you had them side by side, it depend on how you had the color adjusted. You probably couldn't even tell, but what a great marketing thing. <laughs> and the colors are just a little bit cleaner and clearer. So what are you gonna do with this? This is a technology that's emerging it's ready to be commercialized. All you've got to do is figure out something that you want to do with it. Now she knows because she's got powers, <laughs> powers. brain powers. <laughs> she knows something. that I'm leading up to something, right? I can tell. Okay, you go ahead and tell. <clears throat> I can tell you're leading up to something. Okay, go ahead and tell them. <laughs> you're really teasing tonight. <laughs> Okay, I'll tell them. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't remember what it was. Was it? No, actually. You do. Actually, I really do. I've, I've had something on my mind that I really wanted to, to share tonight. And this really kind of makes a point. You know, uh, we've worked hard to create a learning system that would do everything we could think of to make it so that every student could learn. They could master. Mm -hmm. Each of these subjects in school, be it math, science, biology, chemistry, or whatever, they could master it 
faster and better than they could any other way. I had a, a student that recently um, sent me a message via a website that uh, they didn't like a cellus because it was so much work. And learning is work. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose a ballet dancer could say, I don't like ballet because rehearsing is so hard. I don't hear as many people say, I don't like basketball because you get all sweaty. You know? <laughs> but it is. Learning is hard work. And especially, it's hard when you're not used to it. It's like working out with, with weights or some form of physical exercise. If you're not used to it, if you haven't been doing it, it's very, very difficult. As you do it every day, it gets easier and easier and easier. I remember reading the story about the athlete that put weights around their ankles. And every day they go out and train for the marathon, for the long run, by wearing these weights. And at first it was really hard because the weights would make their feet very heavy to pick up. But as they did it week after week and even for months, when the time came for the race, they took off the weights. And the runners said it was like running downhill the whole race because they were toned. Did you know that your brain is a lot like your muscles? That if you tone it, it works better. And you can absorb knowledge better than, than you could without it. And so this breaking a sweat mentally with effort just might be worth it. In fact, it is. And Acellus is doing everything it can to feed you the information in the very best way so that you can absorb it as quick as possible, but you have to put in that effort. Um, some people try to fudge on an exam, try to get the answers without working the problems, or try to do the lessons without watching the videos or whatever. And what are they getting out of it? And how foolish. The knowledge that you gain is power that you will able to be able to use in your lives. It's kind of like, you know, gold nuggets. If you get a gold nugget and another one, another one, are you going to throw them away? No, you can put them in your pocket because someday you'll be able to spend them for something you want. And that's kind of how knowledge is. If you get that knowledge, it becomes an asset that you can do things with. Thomas Edison did a lot of things. He's remembered for the light bulb, but the phonograph and then motion pictures and all of these different things he did. And he did it by getting knowledge, by learning about math and science and then learning how to apply them in his world. Now, not many people know about the story of Thomas Edison and Bill Lair. And in fact, I, I've looked and I haven't found very many places that say anything about it. But Bill Lear was a very creative young man and he, he didn't have the opportunity or, or didn't perhaps take it as much as he should have, but he didn't have the opportunity to really get proper schooling. And yet he was very, very interested in science and in electronics and in radios, 
and things of that sort. And so as he was studying electronics in a class before he dropped out of school, his teacher was teaching the class, how do you make a radio? How does it work? And it turns out the first step in being able to play a radio signal is to catch the radio wave coming through the air. And radio waves propagate, they're called an electromagnetic wave, they're different frequencies. And in a, in a radio, that wave comes through a coil of wire. And as it goes through that coil, it makes voltages. And you capture those volt voltages, rectify them, and then amplify them so you can listen to what the radio station is doing, the music, the talking, whatever's happening. So the teacher was teaching Bill Lair in his class that you have to make a radio coil about yay big to be able to pick up these radio waves to be able to build a radio. And if you look at the radios back in that time period, they were, they were big, and they were big because they had radio coils in them. And Bill Lair shook his head. What do you mean, no? And he says, no, you don't. You don't need to make it that big. And for you guys that are not used to working with teachers, <laughs> <laughs> it's better to just say, uh -huh. yes, ma'am, yes, sir, <laughs> absolutely. But his teacher got in an argument with Bill Lair, and eventually Bill Lair got expelled from school for being disrespectful to his teacher about radio coils. So Bill left. He went home. And he got a pencil, and he got some wire, and he wrapped the wire around the pencil, and he made a coil. And then he made a little radio. And he took it back to the teacher, and he says, if it doesn't work, why does it work? <laughs> bet he enjoyed that. I bet he did enjoy that. <laughs> and that tells you a lot about the Bill Lair uh, I know. Yeah. yeah, that's the kind of person he was. Well, he went back and he showed his teacher, and his teacher couldn't believe it. And they looked at it, and they studied it, and they became really good friends. And the teacher was the one that figured out, you know, if you can make a radio coil that small, and it was because Bill Lear wasn't smart enough to know that he couldn't, so he did, and everybody knew you had to have them big, but he had made a little one. And the teacher said, we could make a radio so small you could put it in the dash of a car. And remember, those big coils wouldn't fit in the dash of a car, but this little one would. So they made a prototype radio to go in a car, and they showed it to another fellow, and pretty soon these things got into production. And guess what their company ended up being called? Motor Radio, Motorola, became a really, really big company just because he had an idea on how to do something that others didn't think could be done. I guess you could say that's a pretty successful invention. Mm -hmm. was pretty successful. Mm -hmm. But from there, Bill Lear became very, very interested in radios. And he said he always wanted to make a better radio, one that would have better sound, one that could catch a station far away, a superheterodyne receiver is what they called him. And, and so he said, I would design, during that time in my life, I designed a new radio circuit every day. And I got a whole pile of them. And then 
Sometimes I get to build them. And that's when Thomas Edison came into his life and became an important influence. Because Thomas Edison said, you know what? Uh, those designs are worth a lot of money. He said, what? He says, well, people that want to build radios. You go find someone that wants to build a radio and say, look, I have a design. I'll sell you the design. And so Thomas Edison coached him on how to pick out his very, very best designs and then go find someone that would be interested in how to present it to it. You know, I'm a radio designer. And I have these designs, and I'd like to know if you would like a better design. Go to the people that are building radios and say, you know what? You could make a better, better radio than that. Look at this. And that's how Bill Lear really got his, his start was selling pieces of paper with lead marks on it. <laughs> kind of fun when you think about it. And Thomas Edison was the one that helped him realize the treasure that he had and how to capitalize on it. And that's one of the things that I would like to, to do with these discussions we have is I'd like to help you see how to turn your ideas into success. And, and this is really kind of how it works. Now, Bill Lear uh, went on, and, and he did a lot of things in his lifetime. Uh, he loved aircraft. And I could tell Bill Lear aircraft stories all night and not get finished, because he told me a lot. Do you remember when uh, I met Mr. Lear, I was one week from finishing my university experience. He was introduced to me by a vice president of the university, and he was looking for a protege. And I think that's French, right? And it would be someone that he would kind of mentor and help them get off on their career. And so I had the privilege of one week later, one week after I met him, climbing in his Learjet, flying home with him, moving into his home, having breakfast, having lunch, having dinner, going to work, and just following him around. It wasn't anything like a formal schooling experience. It was learn by doing, which is a really, really wonderful way of learning. And during that time, story after story after story after story. Did you think that you were learning when you're going through that? I thought it was really interesting. You know, when I went back to be mentored, I thought there was going to be some big thing that would happen, and all of a sudden I would be really smart. Mm -hmm. And it never did. But it was all these little stories and his point of view and what happened and how he did it. And mm -hmm. over that time, it was shaping my mind and my faith in my ability and other people's ability to really do things. Which is, what, is this an interview? I would love to make it one, because <laughs> I could really go there. Okay, let's start by having know what your name is, please. My name is Peugeot. Okay. <laughs> well, there is a, a couple little stories that I think you'd enjoy about Bill Lear. Uh, one of the things that he's very proud of that he invented, he had a lot of patents. Thomas Edison, I think, still has the record for the most patents. And he had a ton. And I think there is a guy that might break that record. Uh, this guy named David Hall, who's a good friend of mine. And, and he comes here. In fact, he was here just uh, last year. Twice, I believe. But at any rate, um, Bill Lear had a lot of patents. And one of the things he invented 
was a thing called an autopilot. And an autopilot was an instrument that he'd put in an airplane, and it would steer the airplane for you. It's kind of like self-driving airplane. And first it started out just holding the airplane level and on a course, and it got more and more sophisticated. Well, one day um, he was testing one of his new autopilots. And you gotta, you got to remember that when I went on my first Learjet flight with Bill Lear, I climbed up the steps, and in the aisle going down the airplane were all of these electronic boxes and wires that I had to climb over to get in. It was a new autopilot he was testing. And that, and and that aisle was really that little. That was pretty narrow, and there <laughs> it was. Yeah. And um, that's when I made my first mistake with Bill Lear because uh, as we started flying, he had a co-pilot, Gunner. What a name, huh? And I, I asked Mr. Lear, I said, what is that? He said, oh, I'll show you. He got up out of the pilot seat and came back to the aisle. And he says, see, this is the new autopilot, and I'll show you what this thing does. And he turned this thing on, and the airplane started going really crazy. <laughs> and then he got a little screwdriver in his pocket, and he started turning. And then it really went crazy. And, oh, okay, that's pretty nice. <laughs> I'll check with you on that later. But uh, <clears throat> he was, he was telling me excited. that back in the day, he was in a little airplane, and he had one of his first little autopilots, and he was trying to get it to work, and you kind of have to fly mm -hmm. to be able to get it to work. And so he went up for a flight to test the autopilot, and he had Bill Jr., who was quite young. So he was, just, was really just a toddler, but he had him strapped in the seat there, and so they were flying the plane, so he turned on the autopilot. Something wasn't working. So he said he got down on his hands and knees and started trying to adjust it. Now that brings up the question, so who was flying the airplane? <laughs> yeah, it does bring up that. Well, it was flying, and I can imagine it was like my ride. It was pretty wild, but he worked on it for quite a while. And then he climbed back up in the seat, and as he started coming up, he looked out the window and there was a military fighter plane right next to him. He looked the other way, and there was another fighter plane right over there. And he had drifted over the military base. And they'd come up to see him. <laughs> and he said, fortunately for me, I was a fast thinker. So instead of going all the way up in the seat, I sunk back down. And I told Bill Jr., wave at him, wave at him. <laughs> <laughs> And then he turned it away back home. So, but they had stories to tell when they landed. Oh, that's Bill Lear. You know, really, really interesting wow. guy. And uh, he had a lot of problems. When he was trying to build that Lear jet, he needed an airplane that was going to be very, very high performance. It was going to be a little airplane for just you know half a dozen people. But it, it's very complicated to design an airframe, a wing that will give you the lift and not too much drag and all those kind of things. And he had a very hard time getting a wing that was working. And the, the big problem was the cost of the engineers. In the days that he was developing this airplane, they didn't have CAD, they didn't have computer-aided design systems. So they were doing it with paper and erasers and pencils and rulers, and they were drawing this, and the money was clicking out, and he was running out of money. And then he had 
an amazing breakthrough moment. And I think this is really, really interesting because this is how projects succeed in the real world. This is one of the things I made a mental note of. And this kind of opportunity I look for, like this quantum dot thing. There's an opportunity there. Either I or one of you is going to figure out something neat to do with that. I have an idea. Oh. <laughs> what is it? You could make a really cool fishing lure with that. <laughs> well, you could change it on certain days. Do they have fish on your planet? They do. We love to fish. (laughs) We do. There's another clue. (laughs) Okay, keep going. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. Were we talking about uh, Bill Lear? It seems like. And what what were we saying? You're talking about his ideas. And what were his ideas? I don't know. (laughs) Okay, he needed a wing for his airplane. Mm -hmm. And he needed a wing that was very advanced and high performance, not like these little slow-flying airplanes. He wanted a jet, one that would really fly. And he was running out of money. And he went on a trip to Switzerland. And as he was coming down to land in the, the airline there at Switzerland, and they landed on the runway, he looked over, and there tied to the ground on the side were uh, Swiss fighter jets. These mm-hmm. were jet fighters. And he looked at him and he says, those were the prettiest airplanes I'd ever seen. And so when he landed, he went over and he looked at those fighters and he looked at him, he looked at them. And if you take one of those fighters and compare it to a modern Learjet, hmm, it's got the same wing. Wow. He says, you can't improve on perfection. <laughs> That's good. I and like so that he saw it and it was good. And so he decided, now I know how to make my wing. He went home and and uh, we have been uh, busily working on the, um, the Learjet that we're going to put up here soon. Um, in fact, Mr. Joseph has been heading up that project, and we've had to replace a lot of the screws, and we've been uh, preparing it. But remember, this is a Learjet that was recently retired, mm-hmm. and we acquired it, and we're going to put it on a pole so that it looks like Bill Lear's taking it off. He didn't take it off like this. He took it off like a rocket, you know, SpaceX. Well, he can and we're going to put it, it right mm-hmm. out here between the Acellus Inn and our, our building, right on the freeway where everybody can see it. We're going to call it the B- William Lear Memorial. I'm excited is, about that. It's really kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Tobias, I didn't make preparations, but I really would like to show a photograph. How am I going to do it? If I give you a photograph on my phone, can you figure out how to get it up for me? Mm. Should I text it to you or should I use my phone? Because I really think we need to see this. What's that? Either way, okay, I'm going to send a text. And uh, what was your name again? Tobias. Isn't it amazing? that you can actually do something like this. I mean, that's pretty neat, huh? Did you get it? Okay, and then after it, I want to show a movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's not real. (laughs) I think I spelled his name wrong. There it is. Okay, so can we get the photograph and the movie? Here they come. 
Now, the reason I got to show you this is because something really remarkable happened. A lot of you have been watching and wanting to hear more about how the einkorn wheat's coming. And as you remember, einkorn wheat is the ancient wheat that has been growing for the last 10,000 years on this planet. And it's very, very good wheat. It doesn't make kids have gluten intolerance. And it's said to help make the bodies very healthy, even to prevent cancer. And there's all these neat things. Well, the only problem is the people that have it won't sell the seed, they'll only sell the flour, and we should all be eating it. And so I got some seed, and we grew it, and we grew more and more and more. This year, we're growing 90 acres, and a lot of you have asked for it. Well, guess what? This weekend, let's do the picture first. Would you like to see a photograph of how it looks? Can you zoom in on that a little bit? If he does not know how to zoom in. All right, but look right there, <laughs> because that's wheat, and it start, the heads are starting to fill out. Can you show us the movie? So here's 90 acres of einkorn wheat. Isn't that something? And the real fascinating thing is we've had a very hard time getting the wheat to grow without the weeds. And you can spray all of these chemicals on it, but who wants to eat the chemicals? They may kill the weeds in, in your system. Right? You have weeds? Okay. Anyway, so... Really? <laughs> Mr. Thomas found out that uh, the Germans have invented a weeding machine that pulls behind a tractor and digs all the weeds out of the, out of the wheat. And it's called a time cultivator. Is that right? Time weeder. Time weeder. That's, that's what we wanted to say. And it has all these little fingers, and as it goes across the field, all these little fingers just jiggle like that, and they chew up everything. You drive it right over the wheat. But the wheat is deep enough that it survives, and the weeds, they're toast. So all of that was accomplished without any chemicals, and it looks like we're going to have a really good harvest. We should be harvesting in one month. So those of you that are waiting for einkorn, I'm sorry the last batch ran out so fast. Samples are coming. Okay? Okay. We're out of time, mm -hmm. but I would like to finish the interview. So how long have you been an alien? <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you. And <laughs> on that note, we'll turn it back over to Joseph. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.